Good morning, church. We have our scripture passage today. It's a short one. It's going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We're looking at two verses. If you want to flip there, there are Bibles in the pew in front of you, um, and you can find this passage on page 1799. Okay, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 through 24. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Amen. Jed, this is touching my mouth. <laughs> it's sermons on anxiety, so sit, chat, I'll feel it deeply, the whole series. Um, all right, I want to dive right in. I do want to say this, though. Um, we, we started several months ago the first inductive Bible study um, big chunk classes where you could come for a few hours and really learn a lot about that. Remember, Christian, the Christian faith is a faith surrounding a revealed religion. God has spoken and shown himself in the person of Jesus Christ, and the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is given to us permanently through the maintenance of its inscripturation in the words of Scripture. Therefore, for the Christian, to respond to God's self-revelation, the good that he is offering us in Christ and in his spirit, what he's spoken and shown about himself, comes to us primarily through history by us possessing the Bible and being able to read and understand the word of God written. And you can understand the word of God written. The Bible is a classic, i.e. written not for scholars, but for the common man and woman to understand what is true and helpful and necessary for flourishing in faith. I really want to encourage you to go to these like kind of big bite classes so that every time you read the Bible, you get more out of it. Does that make sense? All right, I'm going to dive right in because I have about a 90-minute sermon. I'm going to put it into a smaller unit than that. Um... Everybody rushes into easy opportunities. If, if there is a quick buck to be made, everybody rushes into that. The lonely path that's a real opportunity is the actual very difficult one. But some of those very difficult paths are incredible opportunities. Sometimes the biggest opportunities of our lifetimes. I believe that the Church of Jesus Christ in most Western societies, and to the extent to which all societies are now possessed by consumerism, perhaps all societies are coming to a moment where we are coming to an increased fever pitch to be possessed by fear in the form of its medicalization in stress and anxiety. We are living in a moment in which a worldwide and especially present and close neighborly crisis of anxiety and stress fueled by the realities of fear and worry are overwhelming us. And this is an enormous opportunity for you personally 
and an enormous opportunity for the church of Jesus Christ. Okay? Now, it is a huge opportunity, not an easy opportunity. This is an opportunity that is maybe one of the largest in your lifetime for the gospel to do more in you, among your neighbors, and among your enemies, and it is going to be one of the hardest to actually harness. In a number of places in Scripture, God seeks to make very, very, very clear that he is giving peace. He created the world to be a place of peace. He is at peace. He has acted so as to deal with our fears, so as to bring us to a place of peace. Virtually everything God does in Scripture is dealing with human pride so that it can get back to the real issue, the foundational thing in the human heart, which is fear, and to put that fear at peace so that we can have peace with God as a status and a relationship and the peace of God in us as his creatures. And that that peace would reign as God's shalom, peace in the presence of justice, producing flourishing. That has always been God's means, his purpose, his goal, his personal psychological state, his very self. God is offering peace in a world that is sick on fear. Some, in some places in the Bible, he's just called the God of peace. Like in 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 to 24. May God himself, the God of peace, make you holy through and through. May your whole spirit, soul and body, be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful and he will do it. Notice the word may points to a future, hoped for reality. He is not just referring to the peace of God that is in Christ through justification by coming to faith in Jesus. He's talking about an indwelling, experienced peace, what we would call a psychological peace now, but a peace of soul, a peace of heart, a peace of mind that dwells in us continually, increasingly continually, so that we actually experience it. And he says he wants that to happen in us, he is just concluding a whole epistle on our part in it. And he says, ultimately, God is the one doing it. Right? Now, I want to say four things this morning. The first is, is that in us in the first statement is human beings. Without faith, faith as defined by God in the scriptures, what faith means there, not just whatever faith means to you. Without faith, fear overwhelms human beings. It overwhelms human families. It overwhelms human churches. It overwhelms human societies of all kinds. Fear will overwhelm us in the absence of faith. Secondly, fear is a foundational human temptation, yet one we repress and don't want to think or talk about because it's only humiliating. Pride is partly a strength, we think, but fear is only a weakness and humiliating. Third is, is that God is the God of peace. For some reason, the church does not seem to want to believe that. They do not think that God can, if we use his means, his way, what he's told us, how he has guided us and actually took seriously his words and his promises, that that would actually produce peace in us. We need a lot more than that. And I am not against using certain techniques or psychological technologies or even pharmaceuticals in certain specific cases for certain periods of time. What, I, what drives me insane as a pastor is when we go to all that stuff first, when we have not utilized the means that God has given the human person in our humanity and through his divine gifts. 
Now, and God gives two kinds of peace. Both of them are for us. Both of them are for our neighbors. And our neighbors will never come with us to receive the first when we don't exhibit the second. Hopefully we'll have time for that. Okay. First, anxiety, fear, and worry are overwhelming us. There is something under which a significant portion of our society, one that needs our compassion and care, is buckling. Now, when asked, 46% of people under the age of 35 say that they are so stressed that they can't function most days. Now think about that sentence for me. Usually when psychologists want to show that there's a lot of stress, they will ask, or like pollsters, they'll say, do you ever feel stress? Do you sometimes have stress? Right? And then everybody says, well, of course I have stress. It's like 87% of people say they have stress. Right? And we're like, oh my gosh. It's like, what are we going to do? We need more coffee. Right? But, but look at that sentence. That is not like I do sometimes feel stress. It's these people, 46% of people under 35, adults under 35, say they are so stressed that they can't function most days. Think about that. And when you go up to 44, it's only slightly less. It's still 42% of people. Right? So everybody younger than me, I'm 46, right? More than 40% say they're so stressed they can't function most days. Now, when you go through this APA thing that they pay out, the American Psychological Association, and they say, well, what's so stressful? What's happening? The whole purpose of this study by the APA, which I think is slick and completely wrong, is to say, what is creating this mental health crisis is that we live in a time of unprecedented stress. There's climate change. Let that settle in for a second. There's war and all kinds of potential conflicts that seem like they're just about to break out. There is inflation in our economy. 24 total percent on most purchased goods over two years. There's significant racial tension, right? There's People are very concerned and wondering about our national future if we're going in the right direction, right? People feel like their rights are under attack. Interestingly enough, progressive people and conservative people both feel like their rights are under attack and feel like the same rights are under attack. This is kind of like believing 80% of our children are above average, right? Gov people feel like their government doesn't care about them. <laughs> I just want to be like, newsflash, folks. Governments can't care. They aren't the sort of things that can care. Your government is never going to care about you. That's good news. There's pandemics, possibly more of them, and then there's unprecedented political tension. And this is creating an environment of stress that people simply cannot manage. And my response to that is, that is insane. The idea that this moment, where you can buy whatever you want and have it delivered by a drone, where you can eat whatever you want and we'll give you some kind of medicine to keep your heart from stopping. The idea that like at this moment in time, that we are dealing with enormous stresses that are anything other than immediately self-inflicted seems, would seem crazy to all of your ancestors. If we could fill this room with all of the generations of people who begot children in the midst of plagues and real wars and actual stressors and complete inflations and all those sorts of things, and they all sat here and you stood in this spot and said, listen, I'm, I'm living in this just like unprecedentedly stressful time and I can't function. Do you know what they would say to you? Do you have any idea how they would respond emotionally to you? 
Do you think that they would engage in empathy and then validation? They would be like, you know what? I feel your pain. With all these antibiotics that you have, I mean, with, not less than, you know, you have you know, less than half of your children dying by the age of five. Like, it's, I mean, life must be so hard for you. you how many times did you have dysentery this last year? Oh, none? Oh, hmm, right? Right? When was the last time the Vikings came and raped everybody in your village? Oh, it hasn't been a while. I see. Right? Like, here, here's the thing. What we need to understand is, is what is happening is, it's not that there's no stress. There is stress, okay? You are dealing with things that would be stressors to normal human persons, okay? Human life has always had stress. It will always have stress. Every organism that exists, exists in an environment in which there are things that are trying to kill it, okay? You are no exception. There are some billions of microbes trying to kill you right now that are like on just one of your molars, okay? Like, if your environment is always going to be full of things trying to kill you. What matters is how resilient you are. What matters is the emotional process you are having in relationship to the things that are threats to you or imagined threats to you. That make sense? Um, sometimes I call, I'll call this the mental health or the mental illness ratio, that there's a cold equation between what you might call toxicity and resilience, or if you want to put it in what you can do terms, adversity and agency. That's two A's. That's very preachery, right? You can think of it this way, right? You can have a scale of one to 10, and you can give yourself a toxicity score for your environment. How much toxicity is in your environment? How much is against you in your environment? How much, how much, um, how much adversity are you actually facing? That could be objectively numbered, okay? And then, how much resilience do you have? What resources do you have against it? So for example, in a Wisconsin winter, it's going to be cold. If you don't have a home, it's going to be colder, right? We, you, we make homes and we insulate them and we build heaters to create resiliency for ourselves against the winter, right? So how cold it's going to be in Wisconsin this year is going to matter. But am I stressing about it? I'm not. I have a house. I have a heater. So even if it's 20 below most days, all that means is I'm going to pay more money. That I'm not going to die. You understand? Because my resilience is sufficiently high because I happen to have a home that I don't really care about that adversity. Does that make sense? What matters in most of our adversities is our agency, our resilience, our capacity to deal with what's happening. Resilience is like insulation. It dampens the effect of our environmental threats. So the, um, if we all lived in a perfect world, we all would be these super high resilient tough people who never had to be tough. Right? That's called the new heavens and the new earth. Okay. We all want everything in our life to be like that. We want every public school to be like that. We want every family to be like that. We want every church to be like that. We're not. None of them are like that. But that's our goal, right? Now, the reality is, is that if your toxicity is greater than your resilience, you're going to be in deficit. You're going to be overwhelmed. You're going to feel overwhelmed with stress. That goes on long enough, you're going to feel like you can't function. Your body is going to tell you it can't work properly. Does that make sense? And this is what's happening in our culture for 46% of people under 35, 42% of people under 44, for a lot of us. And for some of us, we can still function, but you feel it. If I said, hey, when you feel stress, where in your body do you feel it? Are there days where you feel, like maybe not most days, but some days? I mean, I could tell you like four or five stress symptoms that I had. I can function. I can do my life, but I, I feel stress. Sometimes I feel like that block of green is thinner than maybe it should be, right? Now, 
part of the issue that we're dealing with right now is that in addition to the real toxicity and resilience of our life, we add to it some multiplier that is just how we are reacting. Psychologists call this chronic anxiety. The Bible calls it worry. Okay? Chronic anxiety is more syllables. It's more sophisticated. Right? But basically it's this. You perceive some kind of threat or there is some kind of threat, and then your reaction to that is a multiplier on the threat. Because if your reaction is negative, it's an additional cost. And chronic anxiety is when your reaction is actually worse than the threat. So you perceive something. So for example, the amount of stress the average American teenager, particularly within highly progressive circles, is feeling over climate change is way more cost than climate change is costing them. Does that make sense? There's some younger people who are just, they're whipped up into a frenzy over this, okay? And, like, the temperature has not changed. They're still in 68 degrees in air conditioning, right? Now, there may be a coming doom that they might have to deal with someday. There might be an appropriate anger when they're engaging in political advocacy at that moment, but they're carrying it with them. It's affecting them emotionally day in and day out, along with the, lots of other things in that list. That reaction and the accumulation in their heart, even among things that they have no control over, they have no responsibility for, and they can do nothing about, creates a multiplier that is launching them into a place where they can't function. This is why Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow. Because he knew that if we didn't have the peace of God, if we didn't have faith, fear would overwhelm us increasingly. We would add to it a multiplier of our own reactivity, and we would push more headlong through the pride of believing it's okay to sin into the things we think we need out of that anxiety so that fear would lead us to death. When, we, when fear is supposed to keep us from harm, when it's not combined with faith, when it's not combined with resiliency, when it's not combined with holiness, when it's not combined with faith, it will lead us to insanity through pride unto death. Now, everybody has a profile, right? So you could have like what you might call the functional privilege profile. You have a nice house, you live in the suburbs, everything's going fine. You don't realize you're not actually that resilient, you just don't have a lot of problems. The problem with, with this is that you might feel strong, but you're not strong. Your husband walks out on you, your wife walks out on you, your kid all of a sudden has some major problems, and you are a basket case, right? You think you're strong, but you're not. Uh, another one is the saint who's being martyred, right? Lots of persecution, so much against you, so much toxicity, so much adversity, but so much resilience and real resigned faith in God so that people can kill you and you can say, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Another, and this one's more common than the saint one, is what I call the barely ahead profile, right? It's like, there's a certain amount of toxicity, you're a little ahead of that, and you're hanging in there, but you really wish somebody would give you a break. Someone would pull down. And this is normal. Normally speaking, people don't change unless they absolutely have to, and they don't grow unless they absolutely have to. So generally speaking, if we're surviving, it's because we've gone just beyond the level of stress in our life. That's an incredibly dangerous way to live. 
right? It's like playing a sport without doing any strength training or drills. You're like, well, I'll just do what I can do. And then, well, yeah, but then the moment you turn a little too quick, you tear your ACL and you're done. Like, you have to train from beyond what you're going to face so that you can face whatever comes up, right? Now, this one is a lot, there's a lot of this one, which is what I call just the overwhelmed, where the toxicity or the adversity is just a little bit more than you have resilience for. Just a little bit more. But listen, like uh, one of our, our home flooding and mold experts says, it only takes an eighth of an inch of water coming over the tub to flood your whole, your whole house. And now see, the good news is this. A lot of the people around us that are overwhelmed, it's really not that, by that much. It will destroy their lives. But if we can help them find a little more resilience, they'll, they'll get to barely ahead, which is infinitely better than overwhelmed. Does that make sense? Now, so you might ask yourself this. What's your profile? Like, if, I, if you're bored in this sermon, draw your profile. If you're not, go ahead and draw your profile. Or prepare it for small group. This would be a good thing to do a small group. What's your, what's your profile? Right? Now, it's important to recognize that there are numerous ways God is seeking to remedy this. It is not just, he's the God of peace, just trust God. It's partly that. That is the first thing. You have to let go and let God. There are some cliches that are actually true. There's a way in which that's absolutely true. You have to believe that God is there. He cares about you. He's acting in ways you don't see. He is helping. He is working. And that is just as real, probably more real, than some of the threats you perceive and the things you're worried about. Right? But also every part of godliness, in every way we seek to become like Christ, we are not just becoming more nice. We're not becoming more nice. We're becoming stronger. Love takes ultimate strength. Every, every step in growth towards holiness, towards God, towards the peace of God reigning in our hearts, makes us stronger, more resilient. And every movement towards worldliness makes us weaker, less resilient, more focused on our victim status, what's been done to us, less focused on our agency, our responsibility, what we can do, what God is calling us to do. And so because of that, um, you can think of it this way. Jesus is inviting you to leave Matthew 9.3 for Matthew 11.30, okay? One of the questions you can ask in your small group is, which of those verses do you live in more? Matthew 9.3 is Jesus looking over the people and seeing their state. Matthew says he saw that they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Because they had no spiritual shepherd, they were harassed, so much toxicity, so much adversity, so much more than they could handle, and they were helpless, no resilience. Without their heart being ordered to God, knowing who was guiding them, walking in faith, taking steps forward, growing in the strength of holiness, they were harassed, filled with worry, and they were helpless without resilience. The resilience of persevering godliness. Does that make sense? Which of those verses? And then in Matthew eleven thirty, he says, listen. He's speaking to some of these same people. He says, come to me, all of you who are burdened, who are heavy laden, who are weighed down. Come to me, and I will give you rest. Right? Now, all right, we got to keep going. Second, 
The reason why this is fundamental, the reason why it's such an opportunity, the reason why you need to personally grapple with it yourself is because fear is a foundational human temptation. It may be the foundational human temptation. Now you might say, Nick, well, what about pride? Isn't pride the sin of all sins? We'll get to that in a minute, but maybe not. The reality is, is that fear and worry and anxiety fill the Bible because human beings struggle with many kinds of fear rooted in our limitations, our ignorance, our guilt, our fragility, our need to belong, and our dependence on others. All of those are fundamental human characteristics you can't get away with. All of those characteristics make you vulnerable in some way. Those vulnerabilities are not lost on you. They may, you may not think about them consciously in your conscious mind, but your heart knows them. What we sometimes call the subconscious mind, whatever that means. The place inside of you that knows things that your normal, like, deliberative mind doesn't want to know, your heart knows them. Your heart knows how vulnerable you are, and it's terrifying, and the part of your mind that you normally think in and think of as you doesn't want to think about that stuff, doesn't want to know that stuff, finds it too humiliating to think about. And so our fears just stir. Yet when we look at Scripture, in almost every case where people are called up to faith, it's never, put aside your reason and believe. Right? Faith and reason are not opposed in the Bible. In fact, in many cases, when God calls people to faith, he says things like in the book of Isaiah, come let us reason together, or think about your ways, or consider your paths. He's basically saying, actually, could you get more connected to reality? so that you could believe? That would be awesome. That would be awesome. I mean, that's God's attitude about faith and reason. No, no, no. The contrast is virtually always faith and fear. We are too afraid to do what God is telling us to do because it does not look like a direct path to success. It looks like he's the priority and not us, and we're the pawns that are getting chewed up in his grist mill of sovereignty, which we don't understand and don't really think is good, that ultimately he doesn't have our best interest in mind. All we have on our behalf is some promise that we don't even know if it's going to happen. And the last thing that we're going to do is order our life around all these things he tells us to do about loving other people when we need to take care of ourselves because nobody is going to take care of us if not us. Friends, that is not good, solid, personal affirmation assertiveness. That is called self-righteous, self-centered fear. And so when God speaks to people, he always says, don't be afraid. Meaning, don't let fear take you. That's what it always, it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean, you know that feeling of fear that you have? Just dissolve it through magical psychological methodologies that you don't have. What he's saying is, you feel fear, like in your body, in your mind, in your heart. And it's saying, you need to listen to me! And you need to say, I'm not going to listen, and you have to put one foot in front of another and go in the other direction. Right? You can go to the most secular psychological office here in our town, and if they're dealing with someone with chronic anxiety, what they're going to say is, you have to fight that anxiety, and you, you need to expose yourself to the fear so that you, your body can register and your mind can register. It's not as terrifying as you think. So maybe if you keep doing that, you can move towards a certain kind of courage and have a life, and your anxieties will settle down, okay? That is a true thing. The biblical version of it just has so much more in it. It's like you took all the morality, all the spirituality, all the humanity out of it, 
and he treated the human person as a repetitive computer, only neurology, what would you say? Well, just that. And we are embodied creatures, that's true. But we're, we're a lot more than that. And the more we believe about the layers of who we are in God, the more tools that we have to trust him and to act in a direction of faith. And God keeps saying, don't let the fear take you. The entire question of your whole life is basically, in any situation of question, are you going to let the fear take you? Or are you going to believe in and trust in the God that calls you in a direction of goodness? As you study through fear and peace in the New Testament, peace is often in the presence of righteousness. God isn't just saying, do what I want and let yourself die. He's saying, no, there's something you know is right. You know it's right. And I'm calling you to do it. And the reason you don't want to do it is because you're afraid. That's why. It's your whole life. And the more you trust me, he's saying, the more free you will be of that slavery. Right? In the book of Hebrews it says, Jesus came and died for our sins and put death to death so that we would overcome our most foundational existential fears of death and judgment. And that when those are put away, we are freed from what being held all our lives as slaves to the fear of death. And then when the fear of death begins to die, all of these mediating fears can be dealt with. You find somebody who's not afraid of wrath and not afraid of death, and you can deal with fears of like snakes. You understand? In the arrest of Jesus, you can see this. Everybody's going crazy with fear. The people with power are going crazy with fear and anger. They have to stop Jesus even though they know it's wrong. And all of the disciples are doing different things reactively out of fear. They're betraying Jesus to save themselves. They're cutting off people's ears because they don't want Jesus to be taken. They're afraid to be without him. Some are running away naked because they just don't know what to do. All of them flee, i.e. they're all too afraid to stand with Jesus. The very Jesus who said to them, maybe even that night or the night before, if you won't confess me before men, I won't confess you before my Father in heaven. And all through Scripture, as Jesus teaches, he warns people that worry and fear and anxiety is at least one of the top three killers of real faith and destroyers of people's lives. Right? In the parable of the sower, he says, the desire for other things, the worries of this life, right? And one more I can't remember right now, sorry. Um, will choke the plant of the word of God growing in you and kill you. Just completely destroy it. In Matthew 6, he says, don't worry. Look, God feeds the sparrows. He grows one-day flowers. Why do you have to worry about days and days in advance? He's like, you have no idea what's going to happen. You can't control any of it, right? The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians says, um, I can say I'm going to go somewhere next year, but I don't know where I'm going to be next year. I'm going to make a plan for today, and I'm going to com commit my word to it. I'm going to do it. And when I say yes, that yes is going to be yes. And when I say no, that no is going to be no. Why? Why do people break their word? Because they're afraid. They made a commitment, and now that commitment doesn't look good anymore. And so they want to go back on it. And Paul says, that's not how a Christian lives. When a Christian gives their word, they know they're doing the right thing. If the situation changes, that doesn't change anything. My yes is always yes. My no is always no. I know who I am. I'm not afraid, and I don't know where I'm going to be next year. I look to the future only enough to do my duty. And then I let the rest fall because all the different things I hope for, they can't all possibly happen, and all the things I fear can't all possibly happen. All I can do is do the will of God right now. Now, one of the ways that this functions is that 
we, the Bible says that we are made in the image of God as hu the human creature, okay? So we are both creatures, reasonable animals, and we are made in God's image. When the creature part of us corrupts, we recognize our vulnerabilities and it elicits fear. When the image of God part of us corrupts, we think we're gods and it produces pride. When the part of us that feels fear says, what can we do? There is a part of us that says, I know what to do. The image of God part of us. The rational soul part of us. The part of us with eternity in our hearts that wants to survive. That part, now corrupted by sin, in pride says, let's do this. But here's the thing. Sin, even as concocted by pride, would not be as dangerous. It wouldn't be as tempting if not for fear. Fear is what makes pride seem like a have to. I can't tell you how many people did things that wrecked their lives. And I said, why did you, why did you do that? And they're like, I had to, Pastor Nick. I had to. Whenever those words of inevitability come into your mind, know that Satan is speaking. When there is what's right and what you, quote, have to do, your fears are turning a choice into what, it's trying, your fears are trying to say, it's not a choice. It's not a choice. There's no choice here. There's only this. And that's when you have to be trained in faith sufficiently in your mind to say, that's always a lie. Right? Martyrdom, the martyrdom of the saints, is the constant testimony to you that there is always the choice to rather die than give up the blamelessness of faith and to throw away your identity and who you are in Christ and what Christ has done for you for something that you imagine will save something you imagine you need. Right? And one of the reasons this is so important is, is that most of us feel like we can admit to pride, but we do not feel like we can admit to fear. I, almost every Christian I know, I've said, do you struggle with pride? And they can say yes. They're like, oh, yeah, you know, sometimes. It's, it's like, it, pride is like admitting that, admitting to pride is like admitting that you work too much, right? I'm a fantastic person who sometimes goes a little overboard. How humiliating is that? I'm a fantastic person who sometimes goes a little overboard. I'm the best kind of person you could imagine, except for sometimes I'm a little too good, and I just don't know the proper exact sense of proportion, right? And we're all like, oh, yeah, you should fix that, right? And nobody ever does. That's the sneakiness of pride. You think you're admitting to something bad that you think you're actually repenting of, that you think you're actually going to change when you're actually affirming yourself, okay? The, the lie relative to fear is, is that as long as we can keep, fear can keep you focused on pride, it's happy. Because fear is nothing but humiliation. It's a weakness. The minute you say, that's a fear, nobody goes, that's so brave. Now, we are starting to do that. As long as you admit your fears and don't want to do anything about them, and you, as long as you encourage me in my fears and I encourage you in your fears to be more fearful— and to hold on to that fear, then we can be like, you're so brave. You're so brave, right? But if I just say, I'm afraid of this, and you're like, yeah, that's a weakness. Like, you shouldn't be afraid of that. It just feels humiliating. Because of this, thousands, if not millions of Christians, and most people go through their lives simply avoiding knowing what they're really afraid of. And therefore being dragged around by those fears by the nose without even being able to admit to themselves what they're terrified. That sin you can't stop doing? Yeah, there's fears under that. 
And you're probably not going to make any progress until you figure out what you're so afraid of. Etc. All right, I'm out of time, so we're going to jump ahead a little bit. God is the God of peace. Everywhere in Scripture, God keeps saying he's the God of peace. Every epistle of the Apostle Paul, of Peter, and of John starts with something in peace. Grace and peace, usually, but something in peace. They all end with peace. They all call God the God of peace. God is the God of peace. Everything about God is the typology of peace. So remember Jesus being the priest in the order of Melchizedek? Melech Sedek means Melech King Sedek, righteousness, but he's also the king of Salem, the Melech King of Salam, which is a variant of Shalom, the king of peace. So Jesus is the king of righteousness in himself. He is himself the king, the very embodiment of righteousness. What does he rule over? When he stands in full rule of something, what does that kingship of righteousness produce? Right? The Melech Salam. The kingdom of peace. All of the typologies. And then when you start looking through the Bible, almost everything where God is encouraging us, you're like, okay, if this is the encouragement, what is the underlying thing we need, to, we need the encouragement for? What's the assumed problem for which the encouragement is the help? Think about the etymology of the word encouragement. What do you need more of? Courage. Who needs courage? People who are afraid. And so in all of these places, right? So Eve, how does she fall into sin? You're like, well, it's a sin of pride, right? Well, sort of. But it's a sin of pride with the insinuation of the fear that God isn't, that God isn't going to give you the best and is holding out on you. Once the fear of missing out, the fear that God isn't going to give you the best, is incepted into Eve's mind, which is sheer chronic anxiety. There's no reality to that threat. It's just her own multiplier in her head. Then pride rises up. I have to take care of myself. And the invitation to pride becomes very powerful. Well, if you eat it, you'll be like God. And she's like, well, I should probably eat some. Is it a sin of pride? Yes. But what is a multiplier and fueler of that pride? Her chronic anxiety, her fears that are rooted in nothing real. Think about this, friends. Your entire life, your psychology, your emotion, your relationships, and your eternity can be completely destroyed and swallowed up by fears that are not real. Scripture teaches that all of humanity to this day suffers under the constant feedback loop of fear that started with a fear that wasn't even a real threat. And our lives are filled with that. And so you get to second to first Peter. And Peter is writing to women who are facing the fear of actually submitting to their husbands in faith. And he says to them, you will be Sarah, the woman of faith's daughter, if you don't give in to fear. When he talks about just our daily bread, are we going to be able to survive? He says, listen, God feeds the sparrows. God raises up one day flowers that are thrown in the fire the next day. Don't be afraid. Instead, apply your faith to seeking God's kingdom and what? What was the pair with peace, I said? And his righteousness. Pursue that. Right? When it comes to us, uh, Jesus ascending in heaven, we're being left alone to speak about Jesus by ourselves. We can get, we get pulled in front of powerful people, bosses at work, people who can fire us, people who can negatively affect our lives. What are we going to say? And Jesus says, don't what? Worry about what you're going to say. Tell the truth as best you can. The Holy Spirit will be with you in that moment. You can't control your faith. They're going to do whatever they're going to do anyway. Jesus spoke, spoke perfectly before the Sanhedrin. They crucified him. 
Christians always think, well, maybe if I would have said it differently, people would have reacted differently. Don't tell yourself that lie. People are going to do what they're going to do, oftentimes, no matter what you do. And so not telling the truth isn't helping. Right? And in the, even when Jesus is raised from the dead, the great truth of the resurrection of Jesus, the first thing he had to tell everybody was what? Don't be afraid. The first thing the angel said to Mary was, don't be afraid. The message of God over and over and over again to us is, don't be afraid. Right? And Jesus says, this is what I'm trying to tell you. It's chapter 14, so he's, this is the night of his arrest. He says to his disciples, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. So you're saying, peace is, is peace a gift? Yes. Is peace an achievement? Yes. Can you find peace in following the ways of the world? No. Do you see the three-point sermon in that that I'm not going to preach? Peace is a gift. I give it to you. Don't you let your heart be troubled or be afraid. You don't do that. That is, it's an achievement. You must do it. And you will never get it from the world. I don't give to you as the world gives. The world gives you a fake gift and says you'll have to do nothing and steals from you. I give you a real gift in which you do have to do something that will actually produce what I said. Hence, the next chapter is chapter 15, the vine and remaining in God. Right now, really quickly. There are two kinds of peace. I'm going to try to do this quick because I'm out of time. But this is really important because here's the thing. Your neighbors and our enemies are not going to come to peace with God in Jesus the Christ if we don't have the peace of God literally operating in our hearts and coming out of ourselves. Do you understand? In order for them to receive our leadership in coming to the peace with God, they are going to have to have, we are going to have to have the peace of God. Does that make sense? We have to have the effect of the first peace for them to believe in, of the second, we have to have the effect of the first peace as the second peace for them to have first peace. So peace with God is a status. You come to Jesus the Christ. You repent of your sins and you believe the gospel and you trust in Christ that he died for you. And God freely gives you a new status of not under wrath, but under the righteousness of Christ. You are saved, redeemed. You are God's adopted child. You have access to all of his promises, all of his gifts, all of his help, all of his aid. You are his beloved child. It is an instantaneous, complete and total change of status that happens in an instant that cannot be taken away. It's objective, not subjective. It is an act of God. That is, we refer to as Christians as salvation. It is not all of salvation, but it is so much of salvation all at once and sets all of salvation in motion that it's okay to call it salvation. People say, I got saved. But it is actually the new birth justification. Okay? The peace of God is God actually giving us his own psychological state of divine eternal peace. God is never worried. God is never afraid. He just isn't afraid. Even when he's angry, it's relative. He is at peace. And Jesus says, I am giving you my peace. He's not, he didn't just say, I'm going to give you some peace. You'll have a little bit of peace. He says, I'm going to give you my peace. The peace that walks up to the cross with dignity. The peace that doesn't have to answer the people who are spewing injustice at them. The person who, who can be slapped on one cheek and offer the other one as well. That peace, he says, I give you my peace. The peace of God is an emotional state that through faith we can increasingly actually experience and walk in 
as a part of our real lives, and it makes us capable of things like joy, capable of loving others, focusing on them as real subjects and not objects that can get us something. Completely transformational. We stand at a moment of absolute opportunity. Unlike anything that's happened in my lifetime, it is not an easy opportunity. It is the hardest one we will face. If we, in this moment of fear and anxiety, can find the peace of God through the gift of peace with God in Jesus the Christ, we can offer ourselves, our brothers and sisters in Christ, our neighbors, and our enemies a gift that they desperately, desperately need and that they feel the need of in their own bodies. And we can help pull them out of a tragedy into what they were meant to experience in the fullness of God's salvation. The king of righteousness rules over a kingdom of peace. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, please help.